there is no such thing uh, as an ungoverned space because uh, this is an ideal model that simply doesn't uh, exist in reality because uh, this would take the if the Sahel was an ungoverned space we will live, uh, we would uh, live be in a Hobbesian world and as Hobbes himself showed I mean people cannot live and exist for a long time with repeated interaction in a Hobbesian world. I mean, it's simply not possible. And if you look at the Sahel, I mean, it's certainly not that kind of world. I mean, this is a world of long distance trade. It's, it's a world of organized um, crime, organized uh, insurgencies. Um, there are traditional authority, there is new authority, there is a lot of authority. The problem is that no, nobody is a hegemon. Nobody has uh, come out on top of this. So rather, instead of sort of looking at the Sahel as an ungoverned space, which we think is basically blatantly wrong, uh, it creates uh, flawed analysis, and uh, it's also basically bad for uh, policy because it leads to policies that uh, simply do not reflect what the Sahel actually is and what we believe it is is basically a dense conglomeration of attempts to rule this area. So instead of sort of looking at the absence of something, we need to look at the density of various attempts to govern specific spaces but also to the, the to govern specific routes and to, if not control territory per se, to gain a grip on various segments of the population. And I'm certain that uh, Francesco would like to add to this. Yeah, I, I believe that um, the topicality of the Sahel, which uh, we have uh, observed over the past 10 years, uh, our issue, in fact, spans uh, uh, in terms of observation between um, the collapse of um, Mali, the implosion of Mali uh, as a result of a dramatic uh, evenement, as they are recalled by people there, um, after the, the, the end of the Gaddafi regime in, in Libya, so we are in 2011-12, to the second coup d'etat that took place uh, over the summer uh, in Bamako, so we try to observe events uh, in uh, over an arc of time during which um, the way we discuss about the, the, the Sahel has been uh, uh, changing, evolving, often taking for granted the fact that the Sahel can be demarcated as a space that is either characterized by total absence of control, territorial control, or um, let's say, uh, punctuated just by uh, uh, violence, uh, which has been increasing. We're talking about uh, an increase of uh, uh, some 40% every year in terms of progression of armed uh, um, conflicts. And uh, that representation is part of the problem. It's part of the problem because, as Morton was saying, uh, we need to understand the way in which political order is produced, uh, the way in which... Uh, the Sahel is a social space, which is certainly um, uh, certainly uh, uh, existing in an area of rarefied uh, uh, dwellings and uh, uh, settlement, a human settlement, but uh, under conditions that are changing quite rapidly uh, due to uh, 
technological uh, ad advances. Uh, just think mm -hmm. about uh, air, air conditioning or uh, uh, transport, um, private motorization, uh, dictating the terms of uh, um, all the axis routier. That is the idea of the arid uh, um, extenses uh, south of the Sahara as a as a espace de circulation and not only as, a, as, as an empty space. So all those characterizations are part of the way we imagine the region, which comes to be associated with uh, you know, the idea that this is the reality, but regions are, and regional security are way more than just uh, a, a line on the sand. Uh, it's the production of a space uh, uh, through lines of solidarity, segmentation, and political uh, projects. Now, what is characterizing uh, the Sahel in the last 10 years is precisely, as Morton was saying, the overlapping of uh, claims to uh, produce uh, an order, uh, also as, a, as an answer, or as, as, as an attempt to produce a response to challenges that have been emerging, the most radical of which is uh, probably the rise of jihadism in different forms and shapes uh, that uh, is uh, very uh, able to uh, adopt and uh, sponsor existing grievances to advance its own political agenda. Well, uh, the, the, the first thing that we can observe is that uh, jihadism is uh, rooted, very strongly rooted, in areas where uh, governance indicators are very poor. By all means, uh, uh, we can refer to formalized indicators, but we can also observe to more in line with our methodology, uh, what you observe by conducting ethnographic work on the ground. That is um, the uh, deterioration of uh, social practices and political practices associated with incumbent uh, authorities, uh, typically attempting uh, to use uh, and govern by, from a remote uh, position, from a distance, through a line of proxy authorities, typically traditional authorities that are um, characterized and, and typically identified by the challengers and especially jihadists as uh, corrupted as exponents of uh, uh, a new colonial uh, form of crusade that the West is conducting led by France, typically in this, uh, in this region. Um, this disconnect between the local and, and, uh, and, and central authorities that are re referring to the state, to state authorities, uh, varies across the region. It's not constant uh, between Niger, Mali, Burkina, and so on. But what is constant is the fact that uh, there exists a number of problems linked to uh, social expectations, uh, to uh, um, drivers. Uh, that are typically uh, that tend to converge around the fact that state authorities and their presence locally is identified as abu abusive of fundamental rights, uh, um, and uh, and that is a, a common aspect. Uh, if you go through interviews with jihadi um, former combatants, uh, most of them won't uh, cite uh, um, religious indoctrination uh, as the first uh, driver, as the trigger for. Uh, going to the bush or the labrus, as they call it, uh, but rather a response, a collective response typically of certain villages to uh, uh, the intensification of violence. Now, all of that is, goes through uh, a window of opportunity that has been uh, uh, created by uh, changing ideational and material condition, the availability of a jihadist uh, populist discourse that uh, uh, espouses the, the 
cause of uh, typically of those who have uh, much to gain in uh, in joining them uh, um, in terms of uh, breaking for example uh, so societal uh, segmentation between different groups, uh, uh, the, 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 the existence of forms of racism locally, uh, um, the existence of form of uh, repression and exploitation on the part of elites, and they typically try to uh, uh, find the vectors of propagation through, uh, for example, uh, sponsoring uh, uh, um, uh, notables and, and uh, uh, traders that uh, have an interest in uh, uh, destabilizing the existing uh, authorities in a given area. That typically goes through a kaleidoscope of uh, 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 rather fluid uh, uh, aligning and misaligning and disaligning uh, uh, in terms of who fights with whom and against whom, that where you see questions of resources, who has, gets access to scarce resources, water, land, uh, um, and questions uh, having to do with uh, getting, intercepting aid and assistance including humanitarian uh, forms and uh, uh, other questions related to uh, positioning vis-a-vis -vis, uh, uh, um, authorities. Uh, what is interesting in the way uh, things uh, have been progressing is the fact that uh, um, the big uh, uh, galaxy of jihadism globally uh, has been uh, present in, in forms uh, that uh, have been evolving. Um, we try to, tra to, to, to trace a bit uh, that story in, in, in the issue. Um, for example, the type of political violence uh, uh, does not, uh, at least initially, conform with what we observe in other areas of, of, of the world that are permeated by jihadist uh, violence, like, like in the Middle East, in the Levant. Um, uh, we do see uh, the local dynamics uh, uh, prevailing in terms of uh, uh, um, inter-community fighting in terms of uh, who is recruited um, and only through and across time we see for example the Islamic State and Daesh uh, uh, pushing through its own uh, uh, strategic or tactical forms of indoctrination, use of violence, uh, um, uh, suicide bombers and so on. Uh, that is not something that we see at the beginning of the decade and overall, in overall terms, uh, we can still say that in spite of uh, the way in which Daesh, uh, uh, we talk about the end of an exception for the Sahel, um, Daesh and Al-Qaeda or its own uh, local affiliates, which are to be distinguished because when we talk about Al-Qaeda linked, uh, uh, we're really talking about uh, a galaxy as well with a lot of variety inside. But uh, still, there is a, an Al-Qaeda uh, umbrella organization that is NIM in, in Mali, very strong. And we can see and we can observe how it has been endowing itself with a long-term trajectory um, uh, that has been able to co-opt a number of local issues. The very fact that it has been constituted as an umbrella of organization is, a, is an important element in uh, uh, being able to become a credible interlocutor, even in terms of negotiations with, uh, with the incumbent authorities. Uh, the same cannot be say of, said, of course, for the, for the Islamic State that tries to find its space uh, by uh, attacking Al-Qaeda as uh, too much prone to compromise. Martin. Yes, thanks, um, Francesco. If I may just add on a little bit. Uh, and it sort of relates to uh, more or less to where uh, Francesco ended. And that is, these groups, 
if you look at them over time from uh, when they first arrived in this area, I mean, because, I mean, uh, the jihadi movement here is in many ways sort of, it started with some sort of export from the, from the leftovers of the Algerian civil war. And I'm not going to uh, go through that long story, but basically the fact is that since they started arriving here, I mean, when they were much weaker than they um, uh, are today, I mean, when this, uh, put it in this way, I mean, when the jihadi projects were in a very embryonic state, I mean, they started develop this, developing this strategy of basically trying to appropriate local grievances, local cleavages, appropriate local conflicts in order to further their own local integration. And how were they able to do this? Well, I mean, it was not necessarily due to their, how smart they were and how strong they were, but rather uh, that they could piggyback on extremely weak, bad and corrupted governance by the state so i mean you don't you don't need to be to treat people very good to be very systematic in how you try to if not govern at least get a grip on population if your opponent is basically seen as dysfunctional illegitimate and basically seen as totally corrupted and then it doesn't take that much. And this is what the, the, they have realized. And some of them has become more smarter than others in how they do this. I mean, sort of the, maybe the, the, the group that has taken this the furthest is, the, is this group, uh, which basically goes under the name Katiba Masina, which is a group that operates around this local uh, Fulani preacher called Hamad Kufa in, uh, in central Mali. And central Mali was in many ways an, an enabling environment for this type of group. And they have managed to organize, for, for example, these kind of mobile courts, uh, more courts that is seen as, I mean, people tend to see them as harsh and brutal, but it's also courts that deliver something on the opposite to the local public state organized courts, which is seen as not delivering anything but uh, corruption. So, I mean, if you're, it's not necessarily the strength of these, but the weakness of the state that has made this possible. So, they do, what we are faced with here is basically a competition between a state project, a modern state project that by way too many people is seen as not delivering at all, that has lost almost all its legitimacy, and, uh, and a very haphazard and at times very violent form of governance by jihadi groups, but still a form of governance that at times is seen as at least delivering something. And this was also, I mean, um, together with the two uh, colleagues, uh, one from Senegal, Abdul Wakab Sisse, and one from uh, from Nigeria, I mean, uh, Lauli uh, Mahamane, uh, we have this article in this special issue about the, the situation in Tilaberi. And there you see um, from the interview material that this article is built on, you see it very clearly that, I mean, it's not that people necessarily are so much in support 
of the local jihadi project, which in this case is the Islamic State Greater Sahara. It's just that it's, it's seen as slightly better, slightly more predictable than the other forces that they are uh, faced with. And here it's basically a combination of the Nigerian security forces and a number of uh, non-Fulani militias that also operates in this area in uh, some sort of collaboration with the Malian and the Nigerian state and also with Operation Barkhan. And basically people are saying that, hey, we are caught between a rock and a hard place here. Uh, and while and the rock, which is basically the state-aligned forces, is tougher to deal with than the hard place, which is basically the jihadi groups that are, that is here. This is what the, the, this is what the situation represents to local people, and this, of course, means that one really need to rethink international approaches to this region because the current approaches uh, if you if you look at them from 2013 when the international community returned to this area have they worked and i mean the blunt answer to that is no they cannot be seen as working at all because the situation has not improved from 2013 it has gotten worse um well, first, we, 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 we greet with pleasure the fact that the European Union, for, for the first time, uh, opened uh, its um, strategy on the Sahel to uh, external comments. And there has been an open forum uh, in the last month for the first time, and as far as I know, in terms of contributions that uh, might come uh, to the formulation of uh, priorities and uh, this idea of an open process is certainly most welcome and the challenges somehow and we don't know how effective that process will be but the fact that uh, while most external observers and, and analysts and uh, scholars have been uh, identifying the shortcomings of existing strategies and we're talking about the european union but in fact much of what happens is uh, uh, in the Sahel is led by national governments that coordinate in some form of uh, multilateral fora with uh, uh, a number of uh, significant uh, uh, defections and or differentiations. Uh, we really talk about a hybrid space uh, also because the dynamics of intervention are far from uh, convergent. Uh, in the Sahel, just to mention one, we see the different lines that are ideologically driven uh, that guide uh, the intervention of, for example, uh, Gulf states vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis, uh, Turkey and uh, to, to some extent Qatar that propels Turkey's in, in interests. Uh, we see China going a certain way. We see Russia with its own distinct uh, agenda. We see the US uh, very much concerned with counterterrorism, but uh, over the past few years having a rather fuzzy and, uh, in, and uh, elusive strategy. Um, so we really talk about a multiplicity of actors uh, just to limit ourselves to the formal ones because then you have private interests and so on. But importantly, there has been an attempt uh, uh, to even uh, 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 scale down to a regional level uh, uh, strategies of conflict management, of improving governance and uh, uh, taking uh, in co into consideration dynamics of climate uh, change and uh, uh, 
social emergency. All of that has been done. There's a plethora of special envoys for the Sahel uh, on the part of several governments from Canada to the European Union. Yet what we seem to, 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 to observe, what, we, what seems to us uh, rather puzzling is the fact that for all uh, the critiques that have been uh, advanced and, and put forward, to a strategy which tends to militarize and uh, to a large extent uh, uh, consider the Sahel again as an empty space to be filled with state strengthening measures and that's it. Um, the, the, the guidelines do not change. Uh, uh, there's a certain uh, uh, um, reiteration of uh, simplified answers that is basically um, to identify those political leaders who are able to deliver for one reason or another, who stand on their own uh, uh, dynamics. And those dynamics are typically dynamics of social clientele, uh, uh, dynamics that uh, uh, um, bypass, if not obscure, the notion of democratic governance. And if we believe that democratic governance has to do with legitimacy and uh, with uh, forms of accountability, well, we cannot really say that we saw uh, 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 account dynamics of downward and upward accountability growing. We see political leaders who have been very much keen on uh, not missing the chance to capture um, um, the form of rent, which is international security uh, assistance, uh, which came to become a, a, a significant preponderant portion of state budgets. And we see states that remain pretty weak uh, and uh, uh, unstable. The, the coup d'etat in, uh, in Mali is just one example, but uh, uh, also the elections that are upcoming in the other states in, in the central Sahel raise a number of questions. Not to mention, and I'd like to conclude on a, on a note, what happens in uh, states that are pretty much on the fringes of the area. We observe the state Chad, for, for instance, which uh, is has been for a long time praised for being militarily extremely effective, uh, but which ranks uh, at the bottom of any indicator of democrat democratic governance. Uh, and, and so if that is the indication that comes out of a decade, that is uh, that military effectiveness is the way to, to run the region, uh, uh, well, there are a number of problems, given the fact that we are talking by all means of one of, if not the poorest, region in the world in terms of all indicators that we can uh, try to look at. If I may, uh, thanks Francesco, I mean if I may add just uh, a few um, a few thoughts on uh, on this matter is that if you look at what has happened here it's basically since 2013 an enormous amount of programs and projects has been rolled out in a, a, an environment that basically consists of some of the weakest and most fragile states in the world. What does this mean? It means that the recipient administrative capacity here is extremely low. And yet donors, if we call them that, the European Union, the US, Norway, Italy, and so on and so forth, still seems to insist on this idea that what works elsewhere 
in the world where they are giving donor assistance will also work here. They, they seem unable to acknowledge in their programming and in their policies that that you need to have an other way of assisting these states. I mean, I believe that the states like Mali, Niger and Burkina, they do need external assistance. I mean, the, the shared challenges that they are faced with, and here I'm not only talking about the jihadi rebels, but I mean, the livelihood challenges, the challenge of, um, um, of making these states more uh, resilient to the, um, uh, to the climate change effects that are already starting to appear and will become much more visible in the next sort of 10 or 20 years. Uh, how to deal with enormous uh, high population growth. I mean, all of these things, I mean, it's huge, huge challenges that there is really no way that these states in their present mm -hmm. configuration really can deal with on their own. So they need external assistance in my point of view. But they need an other external assistance that really acknowledges this fragility dilemma. And the fragility dilemma basically comes in two configurations. One is that the, country, the countries today that most urgently needs international assistance, be it military assistance, which I also think is needed here, because I mean, you, one needs to also have a military approach to the jihadi rebels. It just needs to be an other one and a much better one than the, than the one that is today. And it needs to come together with a political project of how to engage these groups. Because yes, I mean, there is a um, hardcore leadership here, which is probably both ideological and theologically uh, quite convinced of their own jihadi project. Most of the, the, the people who fight for them, I mean, understands very little of the theology behind this project and there are other reasons that has pushed them into this. So you need to have a combination of a military approach and an idea about how you can negotiate a solution to at least parts of this. That is completely missing right now. Secondly, I mean, you need to acknowledge that what you need to work on here is finding ways of helping to build state capacity in order to deal with all the various programs that we are pushing onto this area. And maybe we are pushing on way too much into, into an area that really cannot absorb very much. The absorption capacity is currently very low and that needs to be acknowledged. Secondly, and I'll end with this, one needs to acknowledge that looking at the Sahel and the relationship between the EU and the Sahel at face value, you would think that these states are so weak, these regimes so desperately need assistance so that uh, the EU can more or less call the shots here and basically order these regimes to do whatever we would like them to do because they need our money, basically. That is not necessarily how this works uh, on the ground because as Francesco alluded to, there is, a, there is a perverse logic of clientelism going on here which means that we also desperately need them because this is seen not only as a security threat to what is happening to people on the ground. We tend to see this also as a security threat to international security, to European security, to global security. So we need clients on the ground. Uh, and as long as these clients at least deliver something that we think is useful, 
they can buy more or less do as they like as long as they stay in power. And this is quite interesting to, to um, when you take into consideration the relatively lackluster European response to the August coup in Mali, where basically I think that we were quite happy to see IBK go. I mean, we didn't protest very much. I mean, basically, I think that uh, most European stakeholders with any knowledge uh, or uh, closeness to, to the Malian situation was thinking, okay, these military dudes, can they do any, do make it any worse than IBK did? And most were probably thinking, no, not very likely, which means that the only principle resistance against this didn't come from Europe and the EU as the so-called normative superpower in the world. It came from the ECOWAS states. And that is something that um, really tells us something. And I'll end there.